is a historic day because it is the first time it's ever been October 11th, 2020. And it also marks the last day of this sermon series. Some of you might celebrate that. Others might be sad about that. But today's the last day of this sermon series, Thirsty for Jesus, the Mission and Meaning of Mercygate. But as it's the last day of that series, I, I hope and I pray and my desire is that it will be the first day of a renewal in our pursuit of God together. And that's what I mean. I, I really pray that this is a historic day for our church and that what we've attempted to, to pass on to you guys is something of a, of a screen pass where we're looking for a lot of yards after catch, something of a relay where we pass the baton. This is not meant to end today, but to start today. And so I just, if I could speak bluntly with you guys, I want to have a, a bit of a heart-to-heart -heart as your family. And um, I say this as a brother, as, as your servant. I have a lot of love for you guys. And so I pray that this lands softly and lovingly. But I don't think the sermon series has landed quite the way it was intended to land. This sermon series, and in fact, the, the changing of our name as a church, was intended to be something of a, of a clarifying, of a refining, of a magnifying, of a highlighting, of a pruning in some sense of the manner in which we walk out our Christianity together. And if I could be blunt, where we are as a church is not where we want to be. Do you guys agree with me on that? And, and that should be the case in every church until Christ returns in some sense. But in another sense, there's something of urgency that Dan and I are burdened with this urgency. Where we are is not where we want to be, and something's got to give. 2019 knocked the wind out of us. You guys, you, did you feel that? Last year knocked the wind out of us. 1 Corinthians 12 says that when one member of the body is suffering, the whole body is suffering. And quite frankly, last year, many members of this body were suffering. And what happens when you have multiple injuries, multiple traumas in your body? You need what? What does your body need when you go through multiple injuries? Anybody? You need re restoration and healing, right? But 2020 rolled around and surprised us in a way that we never would have expected. Things outside of our control. But those things outside of our control, I believe, have exacerbated the wounds that we felt as a church last year. And instead of coming through 2020 off of injury reserve, ready to get back in the game, we're winding down 2020 limping And so there's an urgency that we feel, specifically when it comes to these particular themes that we've talked about the last five weeks. And we've intentionally used language 
like conscious experiences of God, empowering presence, encountering God's power, a taste of the powers of the age to come, the fillings of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of miracles and healings and tongues. We've, we've intentionally used these things because these things of the Spirit are essential to how we're going to go from here. And those things might feel distinct or they might feel new to what we experience here on a week-to-week basis. But those things aren't new things. Those are the old things. Those are the terms that are presented to us in the Orthodox Christian faith that comes from Scripture. Those are the old things that Christ gave his life to give to us. And the old things are not old. I'm going to just tell you guys that a couple weeks ago, Millie was praying over us, and Dan and I were talking about this, and she had no idea and she, she prophesied over us things that she had no idea were in our hearts. And she said, God says the old things aren't old. They're what we need to pursue. And these things, these terms, these things of the Spirit, though they seem something different than what we experience, when our experience doesn't line up with what Scripture says, we don't bend Scripture to fit our experience. We bow our experience to fit what Scripture says. So there's something of urgency that we feel with these things. And as we've talked about, it is possible to be in the kingdom of God, to have saving faith, to know the gospel, to know everything in the Bible, to know all the doctrines, yet still neglect the things of the Spirit. It's possible to have access to the Spirit and not access Him for what He is willing to give us. Oh, but it's also possible to know Christ and still know Him even more. It's also possible to serve with everything that you have and everything that you don't have and to trust that God is going to provide what is lacking in that moment when you step out in faith. It is possible to stand in the boat on the stormy waves and gaze out at Christ across the waters like Peter did, yet never get out of the boat to go to Christ. And it's also possible to fling yourself in shameless pursuit of Christ, trusting that he's going to make up what is lacking. Oh, the depth of the, the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. His judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable. Do you guys believe that? And so today I want to circle back as we, we close the sermon series and pass the baton. Ephesians says that the work of pastors and, and prophets and teachers and shepherds is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So in some way... In some way, Dan and I don't get to experience the scoring the winning touchdown. In some way, we're on the sidelines for that. And we're equipping you guys to do that. So I want to circle back to Mark chapter 4, which I, I talked about briefly in the closing of my sermon two weeks ago. I made the statement that there is a connection between the Holy Spirit's willingness to empower and our, our willingness 
to make Christ known in faith and obedience. There's a connection between the measure that you use and the measure to which it's given to you. So if you guys could turn in your Bibles to Mark 4, I want to expand on that a little bit. And the, the point that I want to make today is that our effectiveness as a gate of mercy through which rivers of living water flow to other people, our effectiveness as that gate will be decided by the measure that we use. Things are not where we want to be, and something's got to give. The fruit that we will bear as a church will be determined by how we steward what we've been given. So would you guys turn to Mark 4, and I want to I want to read the text, verses 1 through 25. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, and behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose it was scorched, and since it had no root it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a, on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, 
even what he has will be taken away. Would you guys pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning in desperate need of hearing from you, and we come in desperate need of being able to receive what you give to us. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, and, Lord, would you till the soil of our hearts to hear this word in such a way that bears fruit. And, Lord, I pray that, that today would mark a historic day in our church as Mercy Gate. Lord, we want to see you honored and glorified and lifted up and exalted right here among us. We want to see more people in this family. Lord, we want to see you just glorified in our gatherings. And so, Lord, use the things of the Spirit. And, Lord, I pray that you would enable us and help us to partner with you in using those things that you've given freely to us, Lord. Help us to trust and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. The, the setting of Mark chapter 4 is a familiar parable to you guys, and I don't want you to get lost in the familiar. And the scene in the beginning of chapter 4 is one that I can relate to well because I love the beach. Does anybody else love the beach? I love the beach, and I'm even, I'm pl we're, we're planning to go to the beach this week, so I'm excited. And this scene resonates with me because there's something about being beside the sea that speaks of God's grandeur. There's something about hearing from God by the ocean that just is, it's powerful. And so here we see that Jesus must have felt something of that, right? He spent a lot of time by the sea. And in Mark chapter 4, he sits down beside the sea to teach a large crowd. Up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has demonstrated his authority in powerful ways to the point that a large crowd was pressing and, and seeking after him. They were gathering around him so tightly that he had to get into a boat and push back from the shore to be able to have some separation to teach. And it's in this context that he brings this parable that I believe you guys all know. I hope you guys know it. But I want to call your attention to the conversation that happened after he shared this and finished teaching to that large crowd. Look at verse 10. When he was alone, those who were around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Something didn't click with the disciples. Surprise, surprise, right? But they asked him about it. But they couldn't figure out why he was teaching in obscure, abstract ways. They didn't get the meaning of what he was saying. But his answer doesn't really seem to answer their question. It actually is more unsettling, and it's even more obscure, because here's what he says. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see and not perceive so they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That's unsettling to hear Jesus say that. 
Many of you guys m have heard the phrase that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Or it's a, a, a story used just to illustrate heavenly things. And those things aren't necessarily false. But as Jesus explains this parable, we begin to see that parables are much more. Was Jesus intentionally excluding people from his kingdom? I want to come back to that in a minute. But look how he explains the parable. He says in verse 13, If you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand all the other parables? There's something unique about this particular parable that explains the method that he used to teach. And so as he begins to explain it in verses 14 and following, it becomes clear that in this original context, as the, the disciples would have heard him explaining this, though he doesn't explicitly say it, he identifies himself as the one sowing. And in Mark, up until this point, with the exception of John the Baptist, briefly at the beginning, Jesus is the only one doing teaching in the Gospel of Mark, and he's doing so with authority. And so he implies that he is the sower who is sowing the word. And as he explains the difference in soils, it becomes clear that as he teaches, he's aware that in the crowd around him, there are a variety of heart conditions. If you guys review the first three chapters of Mark, there would have been individuals in that crowd as Mark 3, verses 7 through 12 teach us, that were hanging on every word Jesus said. They were in awe of who he was. They couldn't get enough of who he was. And they were declaring that he was the Son of God. But in that same crowd, as Mark 3, 22 through 30 teach us, there were individuals who did not accept what Jesus was saying. They were not filled with that same sense of awe, but rather they were seeking after Jesus to hear him commit blasphemy. They wanted to hear it with their own ears and condemn him upon those words. This is the context that he's sowing the word of parables in. There's something about this parable that explains parables. It's a parable about parables. It's kind of like the movie Inception. Are you guys confused yet? It's a parable within a parable about parables. But let me just explain what he's doing here. He's speaking in parables because Jesus, Jesus' ministry was unique in many ways. But in one particular way, because his ministry had to take place over a certain amount of time in order for him to accomplish what he came to accomplish. And so there is something intended in the parables to both reveal and conceal the message that he was bringing. And practically, on, on, on one hand, he was teaching in this way, to preserve the allotted length of days that he needed to accomplish what he came for, right? There were prophecies that had to be fulfilled. There were individuals that he had to encounter to restore, to heal, to cast out demons, to redeem. There were, um, 
the law that he had to walk out. He had to perfect obedience in the midst of trials, and that takes place over time. And so had Jesus just stood up on day one and completely revealed everything all at once to everybody in public, either one of two things would have happened. He would have been exalted to the highest place as an earthly ruler, and he would have been insulated from any type of harm, and therefore would have never been able to be crucified to atone for our sins. Had that not happened, he would have been put to death immediately for blaspheming. And so he spoke in a manner that both revealed and concealed who he was. And as we see in verse 21, Jesus did not teach this way to intentionally exclude people, but rather to stir up faith in the hearts of the hearers in such a way that they would pursue him. Verse 21 tells us that a lamp is not lit to be hidden. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The things that he was partially concealing and partially revealing were meant to be revealed in full at a certain time. And if you guys read through the Gospel of Mark... There's a a particular theme in chapters 1 through 8. Mark is revealing Jesus to be the Son of Man, the Messiah. But you've got to remember, for those who were in the middle of this, they were in the middle of the unfolding. They didn't have the whole New Testament to explain the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. They were watching this unfold before their eyes. And so in Mark, you see the author Mark presenting Jesus as the Son of Man, and then you see Jesus proving that he is that Son of Man, the Messiah. And the whole Gospel of Mark hinges on, on Mark chapter 8, verse 30, when all of a sudden it, it becomes obvious to Peter that this is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, and he declares that. And right after that, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up the mountain where he is unveiled before their eyes in all his glory. And what does he say to them? Do you guys remember Mark 9, 9? He says, do not tell anyone about this until after the Son of Man has risen. And they're like, risen from what? What is he talking about? You see, the ministry of Jesus was a a progressive unfolding of his identity as the Messiah. And that moment when he came out of the tomb after he was crucified and the soldiers fell on the ground and the angels shone around him in glory, he arose the victorious son of God who conquered death and the the mystery that had been concealed for ages was now fully revealed in him. That which was hidden was not meant to remain hidden but to be revealed for all to see. Pay attention to what you hear. But what does this have to do with us right now? I want to, as Tyler would say, I want to get back to the boulevard. Mark uses this language in verses 21 through 25 that Matthew and Luke use the same language in several different contexts. And so we see in this section, as Jesus is talking about things being revealed, 
we see something of, if I could call it this, a kingdom catchphrase. Jesus had these phrases that were repeatable, that were simple one-liners, that were truth about who he was and the kingdom of God that could be applied in many different situations. And honestly, I'm thankful to God that he teaches us in that way because we need repetition. We don't get it the first time. If the disciples who walked beside him and saw him with their own eyes didn't get it the first time, how much less do we? But he uses this kingdom language. And so while in some sense this parable is speaking directly about Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah, he's also speaking this knowing that this act of sowing is going to be transferred. Just before this, in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and following, it tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed them for what? So that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So as he's speaking about himself sowing the word of who he is, he's also knowing that when that moment comes that he is fully revealed, the act of sowing is going to be transferred to his followers. The act of revealing, once it fully takes place, is going to be passed on to his followers, to his sent ones. And so he uses this kingdom language to bring all of us in. It's not just that we need to respond to the message of Jesus as the Messiah with good soil. We do. That is very true, and that's essential. But there's, there's something else about the kingdom of God in which we also have to receive in the same way. I want to direct your attention to Galatians chapter 3 with that in mind. In order for us to receive the kingdom of God, it's essential that we hear the seed that Jesus declared that he is the Son of God who is necessary to save us. It's essential that we enter the kingdom of God in that way. There's no other way into the kingdom. That's the entry-level doctrine. But Paul would say in Galatians 3, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? You guys catch that? If we enter into the kingdom of God by hearing the word about Christ and responding in faith, then how could we assume that every day in the kingdom afterwards is anything less than that? What did Jesus mean when he said the secret of the kingdom has been given to you? Well, obviously, as I mentioned, the secret was Jesus' identity. 
But what does it mean that it had been given to them? We see here something of the mysterious doctrine, and we don't have time for this right now, but the doctrine that God would come to a chosen individual and reveal the secret of his kingdom to that person. On one, on one hand, that is entirely the grace and the sovereignty of God. But on the other hand, what did it say in, Luke, or in Mark 3 about the 12 that he had chosen? It says, those whom he desired, and they came to him. Think about the fact that Jesus is explaining the good soil to who? Look at verse 10 again. He's explaining what the good soil is to those who were around him when he was alone, who were asking him questions. You guys catch that? There's something mysterious about those to whom God reveals the kingdom of God and those to whom are seeking after him and gathering around him and asking questions in pursuit of knowing who he is. It's the mysterious connection of grace and faith. It's the connection between hearing and receiving and obeying. It's the connection between, dare I bring this up again, faith and favor. You see, the, this is all, it's all intertwined. Those to whom the secret of the kingdom was revealed were those who had hearts that were conditioned by faith. The soil of their hearts was humble faith inclined to obey. It's also interesting that he says the, the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. There's something about hearing in faith and bearing fruit. In one sense, the faith bears the fruit, and in another sense, bearing the fruit proves the faith. It's the same thing James talked about. Faith is proved by works. It's proved by obedience. It doesn't come by works. It's proved by works. And so here we are talking about the things of the Spirit. Dare I say that... Um, as the writer to the Hebrews would say in chapter 5, we've got to mature past the elementary doctrine of Christ. It sounds shocking. We're a, a gospel-centered church. One of our highest values is that we're gospel-centered. But there's something to growing into maturity past the elementary entry-level doctrine that gets us into the kingdom. There is much more to be known, to be learned, to be experienced in the kingdom of God. And as Galatians 3 says, if we come into the Spirit through faith, how much more do we need to walk it out in faith? I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. If you guys want to turn there, go ahead. 1 Corinthians 2.10. Paul says, The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, 
we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There's something about the seed that Jesus sowed and then passed on to those who would continue sowing. It's not only this elementary doctrine of Christ that he has saved us. He, he's essential to our salvation. We can't get away from that. Everything we do rests on that. But we've got to grow into maturity on top of that truth, on top of that doctrine. We've got to understand deeper and deeper the heart of God. And as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, we can only do that by the Spirit. We cannot learn spiritual truths about a spiritual God without the Spirit interpreting it for us. And how do we, how do we receive that? The seeds that bore fruit on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Pay attention to what you hear because the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. In this context, the measure of hearing in faith that you use, the understanding will be given to you. But when we expand that to a kingdom, to a kingdom theme, remember Jesus operates in, in kingdom economy, right? We live in an upside down kingdom. I, I just heard it described this way. In the kingdom of God, if you want to live, you must die. If you want to receive, you must give. If you want to go up, you must go down. That's the kingdom of God. And, and honestly, it's the, it's the kingdom of the world that's upside down. God's kingdom is right. The measure that we hear these things and respond in faith is the measure of understanding that we will have. But as that act of sowing is passed on to us as his followers... Here, we're just going to blow the doors off the whole thing. In this text, we're the soil. But when Jesus ascends to heaven and passes on the ministry to the apostles, now we become the sower, right? But in Matthew 13, right after this parable, he talks about the parable of the weeds. And in that parable, we're the seed that's being planted. And in John chapter 4, he talks about us being the reapers who are harvesting the grain after it grows. We're the sower and the soil and the seed and the harvest and the reapers. Do you guys catch that? This is what, going back to Ephesians 1 from a few weeks ago, Christ fills all in all. This is part of what that means. And we're so intertwined with what he's doing by his spirit, by faith in him, that he's filling all in all. We're, we're undertaking this with him. And so... It's not just that we receive the seed of who Jesus is in faith. But we also undertake the role of sowing in the same way. The measure that we use, it will be given to us. Just that term, the measure, I, I just want to point out that it's a container used to measure seed. It's a very simple concept. If you're making a recipe at home, the measuring cup that you use is the amount of ingredient that's going to go in the recipe, right? If you're a, an ancient Near Eastern farmer, the measure that you use to scoop up your grain is the amount of seed that's going to be planted. 
the amount of fruit that's going to be born is directly related to how much seed is planted, right? If you plant one seed, you're not going to have a whole field of crop. If you use a measure in your sowing that is larger, there's going to be more seed planted and more fruit born. It's a simple concept, and it's the same thing as saying you reap what you sow. So when it comes to the things of the Spirit that we've talked about, the filling of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, these things are not something that we can accomplish through works of the law, as Paul would say. These things are not things we can conjure up. We can't manufacture them. But they come through hearing and faith and obeying, right? The measure that we use in pursuing the things of God, namely God himself working through us, is, to, is the measure to which we're going to bear fruit. Our effectiveness as a gate of mercy is going to be directly influenced by how we use what we've been entrusted with. So when it comes to the filling of the Holy Spirit, this is a command for us. And it's a command that is something that we pursue daily. How can we apply this to the filling of the Holy Spirit? First of all, you can't be filled with something if you're filled with something else. You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit if you're filling yourself with other things. When you wake up, and you feel empty, what do you fill yourself with? When you're in the middle of the day and you've encountered the opposition of this world and sin and your, your, your ugly past, when you've encountered that in the middle of your day-to-day -day routine and you feel empty, what do you fill yourself with? When you're falling asleep at night, what do you fill yourself with? The measure that you use is going to be measured to you. If you're filling yourself with a measure of other things, that's the fruit you're going to bear. As A.W. Tozer says, we're as filled with the Holy Spirit as we want to be. We're as filled with him as we want to be because he is eager and ready to fill us to overflowing. But as 1 Corinthians said, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and love is kind, and love does not insist on its own way. So we can rightly assume that the Spirit of God operates in that manner. If he's defining love in that way, and he wants to partner with us in loving relationship, he's not going to insist on his own way. He wants us to partner with him. He wants us to come under his yoke and walk in the direction that he's walking. But we're not going to be filled with him if we're filling ourselves with things of this world. When it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, how do we apply this? The measure that we use is going to be measured to us. If we're stepping out in faithful obedience to build up our church, to encourage one another and to make Christ known, if we're stepping out in faith, it's going to be measured to us. It's a promise. 
It's not a what if. It's not something that we can work out an equation. It's a promise of God that he's faithful to uphold. When we step out in faith to build the church, he empowers. If you step out in a way that you can control, that is something you can naturally accomplish on your own, you're not going to see the same empowering. Does that make sense? If you're trusting in yourself to do it, then that's the fruit you're going to bear. When it comes to the visible presence of God among us as a church, the measure that you use is going to be measured to you, plus more. I don't want to leave that part out. Plus more. To the extent that you devote yourself to the people of God and the worship of God among the people of God, his presence in a noticeable way will be measured to you. If you're not devoted to that, he's going to patiently wait until you pursue. And so the sermon series, as we, as we round it out today, my heart's desire, my burden for us is that we take this kingdom theme, you reap what you sow, the measure you use is going to be measured to you plus more. The one who has, more will be given. You know, Matthew uses that same language in the parable of the talents, as I mentioned. The one who has property entrusted to him and puts it to use for God's glory, more is going to be given. But the one who buries that property who doesn't put it to use, it's going to be taken away and given to the others. Everything in the kingdom of God operates under these principles. And it's, it's really simple. It's a heart that responds in faith and obedience. That's all it is. Trust and obey. The little kid's song. It's so powerful because it's so simple and so necessary for us. Are you a person who is filled with a heart of soil that is choked out by the cares of life, by other things? Is your heart filled with soil that when it encounters persecution or difficulty or trials, it gives way to those trials and does not respond in faith to God? Or is your heart filled with soil that's conditioned in humble faith, childlike faith? I thank God that he reveals these things not to the wise of the world, but to those who have a heart like a child. It's easy to be like a child, to be honest, and so I'm thankful for that. But you know what? To be childlike, it takes a willingness to be shameless. It takes a willingness to step beyond the fears into obedience that bears fruit. And it's not until that obedience takes place that the fruit will be born. Our effectiveness as Mercy Gate Church is going to depend on how we use the things that are given to us freely by God for the building up of his church and for the glory of Christ. The things of the Spirit are not the old things that were left behind for another time. The things of the Spirit are essential for us. The ministry of the Spirit revolves around building the church and glorifying Christ. His ministry is not going to change whether or not we participate. 
But if we participate in his ministry, the fruit's going to be born 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. He's going to provide more than we could have ever imagined. The measure of faith and obedience that we put out there, he's going to move in ways that we never would have imagined. You guys believe that? And so that's, that's my burden for you guys. Uh, music team, you can come on back up. We're going to close it out, and I'm going to pass this to Dan. Because I feel, I feel burdened that we need to respond to these things in some way, and I don't know what it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it to Dan. But the last thing that I wanted to share with you is that this is the picture that I saw yesterday as I was praying about this stuff. And it seem, might seem silly, but I've been really trying to learn how to grill with the charcoal grill. I've been trying to master it. And what I'm picturing in our church is not a bag of charcoal that's untouched. What I shared with you is not to say that you guys are dead. It's not to say that, that we haven't touched the flame. But what I saw when I was praying about this was a, a pile of charcoal in which the bottom there's hot coals. Maybe one, maybe two, I don't know. There was, there was red hot coals in the bottom and a pile of charcoal. Some of it had been touched by the flame and was starting to ash over and some of it was still black because it hadn't been touched by the heat yet. But I believe that is where we are as a church. The fire is there, it's under the surface. Are we going to let God have his way and burn?